Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube, or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, a founding member of one of the most popular and successful R&B groups of the 1980s and 1990s, Jonathan Lewis of the prolific Atlantic Star. Yeah. With uh, Jonathan on percussion and trombone, uh, the band scored five consecutive top 10 R&B albums from 1981 to 1987 and racked up an amazing 16 top 20 hit singles from 1978 to 1991. Those tracks include Send For Me, Circles, Touch of Four Leaf Clover, Freakeristic, Secret Lovers, If Your Heart Isn't In It, My First Love, Masterpiece, and Always, which went to number one on both the R&B and pop singles charts. After taking a nearly 20 year hiatus off from album releases, Atlantic Star came back as strong as ever with a new set in 2017 and the group continues to set stages of fire. Jonathan, how are you? I'm wonderful, thank God. You know, I can't complain. You know, um, you know, in lieu of the pandemic and all the other madness that's going on in this country right now, I must say that I'm pretty calm and um, you know, I'm just trying to stay positive and stay focused. Well, know. very glad to hear that. And uh, where are you coming to us from today? I'm from New York. I'm in New York, New York. Yeah. Born and raised, right? Yep. I'm a, I'm a native New Yorker. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so when people see this, it'll be a few weeks from now. Hopefully, some of this madness will have calmed down, but who's to say? We can't tell, but we hope for the best, of course. Yeah, well, let's hope so, you know, because it's been, been quite challenging um, what's taking place in this country right now. But on the other hand, it's been uplifting, too, to see people finally getting woke and coming out and, you know, in, in protesting, protesting against all the injustice. Yeah, so again, you know, thank you so much for joining the show. Really appreciate it. I've been a fan for a long time and really looking forward to the conversation. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Going to test your memory back, Banks, a little bit. I hope that's okay, you know, but uh, hopefully it'll be a fun, nostalgic journey back a little bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jonathan, tell me, you know, you're growing up in New York City um, or thereabouts. You know, you had all the, these musical siblings, and what was it like in the Lewis household, and how did you guys get so into music? Well, it was plenty of action, let's put it that way. Um, we were all active. Um, I guess we all began, it all began in church for us. You know, we grew up in a small town called Greenberg, New York, which is a township of White Plains. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were a very musical family, you know. Uh, I had cousins, uncles, and other folks in my family on both sides, on my mother's side and my father's side, that were very musical. You know, my sisters and um, my, my, one of my cousins played classical, and another one um, of my older cousins played guitar, and my uncle played drums for uh, um, uh, Brooke Benton and um, King Curtis. He was a studio drummer at Atlantic Records for many years. Wow. Um, and did recordings. Um, so, you know, the influence was there. You know, we were very active in church. We sang in the, in, in the choir. And then my uh, brother David was a soloist. Very young, he started singing when he was like eight or nine years old. Um, and Wayne and David started singing duos together in church. And then my brother David um, had one of the uh, I don't know if he was an usher, one of the brothers in the church that played guitar that used to accompany accompany my brother, um, you know, when he would go out and sing at different churches. And I remember he, David did um, uh, Ted Mack's Amateur Hour when he was nine years old. I don't know if you remember Ted Mack. I don't, I think I've seen it, but I've certainly heard of it. Yeah, they they used to... uh, do the show out of the Ed Sullivan Theater on, I believe it was on Broadway. Um, and he got to go on Ted Mack. And um, one of the viewers saw him and took interest in him and got into contact with my mother. And she offered to give him classical training. 
basically on scholarship because she was just intrigued, I guess, with his voice, but kind of, I guess, so his talent. So my brother David and Wayne started training classically very young. And um, that's more or less the humble beginnings. You know, I was the oldest, so I was more or less the big supporter at that time. Um, I was doing sound um, for a, a group that I was involved with because, um, you know, we had different groups that we kind of came out of. My brothers were younger, and when they started their group, the name of the group was called Unchained Youth. I was playing with a group called New Band, but I wasn't playing at the time. I was doing sound. I started out doing sound and setting up equipment first. And then eventually when Sharon Bryant joined the group, she came out of a group called South Road Connection. Hmm. So that's kind of like, you know, fast-tracking it to, you know, to kind of um, put together how it all came together, just put it that way, how it evolved. But, yeah, I mean, again, we just, it was just a musical family, musical time in our lives. Growing up as kids, you know, we were influenced by everything. We, I mean, one thing about in my household, we just didn't listen to one musical art form. We listened to, you know, at that time, it was jazz on the radio, it was pop, you know, um, it was um, country western. Of course, classical, gospel, Mahalia Jackson, all that stuff. Um, you know, and then once the, the that whole rock and roll era really kicked in with the Beatles and Rolling Stones and all that, we started listening to all of that. And of course, Motown. We listened to all the Motown. Motown was just was the biggest at that time. You know. And then we had a famous DJ in New York called Cousin Brucey. I don't know if you remember Cousin Brucey. But he was on one of the top 100 stations, and he played everything. So we listened to it all. We listened to Patsy Cline and, and you know, um, it's just so much. You know, like I said, Motown, The Beatles, Dave Clark Five, um, Sly Stone, James Brown. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We, we just had some great influences growing up, you know. And then the jazz, listening to Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and all that old bebop era and Duke Ellington and Count Basie. You know, we, we were just influenced by everything and everybody, you know. Yeah. Um, but you uh, picked up some trombone somewhere along the way? Yeah, it's funny. I started playing trombone. I, like I said, I started doing sound. And then I went off to college, and on the weekend, I would come home, and we would do gigs, and I would do the sound and, you know, set up, and, you know, more of the roadie-type work. And then um, a friend of mine, I took interest in trombone. I always liked trombone, but I took, I, you know, I took an interest in it because piano was in the house, so even though I didn't study classically, but because the piano was in, my brothers were studying, and it was music always around, you know, I was able to kind of get into piano 
and I told a lot of the piano myself, and then my brother Wayne showed me a lot of stuff on the piano. Um, but trombone was an instrument that always intrigued me because it didn't have valves, you know, to slide. You had to be able to hear and, and, and know your positions and be able to get to the note and hit it right on. So I was like, I, I wanted that challenge. <clears throat> so what I did is, uh, it was funny, a friend of mine by the name of Jesse Brown had, had a horn and he was in the pawn shop and he said, if you go get the horn out, it's yours. Um, because I loved the way he sounded. He had some of the best tone. I think he played E-flat baritone and then he played trombone too. But his tone was like, when I heard him play, I was like, yeah, I really want to play this instrument because his tone was just, I was like, man, I hope one day I can get my tone to sound like that. So I went and got the horn, you know, worked, raised the money, bought the horn. And when I got the horn, he started teaching me. And then he got me through the basics. And after that, I would just, I became very fanatical about rehearsing. And then at that time, the trumpet player in the group that I was in, new band, um, he helped me out a lot because he would, you know, he had been playing. He played trumpet throughout high school. His name was um, Albert Jones. And basically, um, you know, once I got up to par, I started shedding with him. And so that's what really was, the, that's where the genesis of my trombone uh, experience began mm -hmm. um, and I just evolved from there you know um, it was a lot of work um, and perseverance a lot of frustration because it's, it's an extremely frustrating instrument when you're trying to perfect it but I was uh, adamant about practicing and I always had this this this, this thing in me where I never wanted anything to do defeat me. I, I was like, I'm not going to be defeated. <laughs> so uh, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn this. If, you know, if it kills me, I'm going to learn. So that's what happened. I just persevered. And after a while, after the years of putting years in the time in it, I really started sounding like a real trombone player, you know. But I'm, I'm very thankful for the people that Help me through my humble beginnings, you know. So yeah, I I, got I played trombone and I played it for quite a few years. Um, and then in the 80s, I got into really playing a lot more piano and then writing. And because I, you know, got into writing and playing piano and then programming back in 1982 when the musical software came out, I started, you know, teaching of musical technology and musical programming and I started spending a lot of time you know musically programming and sequencing and so on and so forth mm -hmm. yeah so new band you know did you play trombone with that group or no yeah I did I evolved from being the sound guy to trombone player yes yeah so they you know had definitely a jazzy kind of feel and and the horns were more up front and 
you know, you could hear a lot of those influences you were talking about, I think, in yeah. those two albums that they did. Yeah. Um, yeah. H- how did you guys, or how did they and you feel about the band and those albums and, and where everything was at at that time? Well, for me, you know, it was mostly experimental. We were doing a lot of cutting edge stuff. And it's like I listened back about two weeks ago. I listened back to a lot of the new band stuff that we, you know, that we um, created and the stuff that I played on. And I was like, wow. I, You know, when you're in it, you don't realize the dynamics of it. And, you know, because I hadn't heard it, you know, I hadn't listened to it in many, many years. And when I listened to it, I was like, man, we were playing some slamming horn parts, you know. Um, we were innovative and we were trying new things and um, expressing ourselves through the influences that had, you know, that had um, influenced us. So we were... We were into the whole improvisational thing and feeling free in the music, um, which was cool. But for me, it got to a point where, you know, but we got to eat too. Yeah. You know? um, and so my head started shifting more into like trying to be more contemporary and more trendy so we can get into the market and start really be making a living from, you know, from playing uh, music because we loved it. But, you know, it's one thing, it's great to be creative and experimental, but a lot of times that don't pay the bills. So, you know, it's like the shift came when, you know, we started talking about we need to get more, a little bit more commercial and more up with time and trying to keep stay original but being able to be uh, more contemporary at the same time Mm -hmm. so that's basically you know what happened you know um, we started incorporating other elements into the group Um, I think what happened with us was we, what what really kind of um, opened the door for the change to happen is we got offered to do a Steam Music Festival in the French Alps in 1974. And at the last minute, the keyboard player we had fell out. So I we had to scramble. So I went and um, I talked to my brothers and got them, brought them over, you know, took care and paid for their tickets and got all their passport stuff straight, make sure it was all cool. Because they had passports, because they had been going overseas, doing performances, because the school that I uh, grew up in, uh, we had a music teacher there named Evelyn LaRue Pittman that worked with Marion Anderson. And basically, she wrote this play about Martin Luther King. And it started with my class, and then she kept it going after my graduating class, and she just continued it. And by the time my brothers came along, 
dad raised money to really take it out um, internationally, take the whole chorus out and tour. So they went to Copenhagen in Denmark. I think they went to Africa. But they played Tribalese over in Copenhagen. And it was a phenomenal success. You know, they had standing ovations and everything. So my brothers had passports because of that. They were traveling and touring at a very young age. So, again, I grabbed them to come with us over to France. And Porter, which was the drummer with us at that time, he spoke to his cousin Sharon that was with another group called Safro Connection. And she agreed to come do the shows with us. I think she had started doing some singing with us, but I think those dates over in French Alps kind of sealed it, you know, as far as what the uh, what the unit or what the group was going to look like from that point on. So we went over and we did the shows over in the French Alps. It was a ski music festival. It was a black ski music club that took us over to do the show. Uh, do the shows. Um, and so when we came back, we started doing shows and doing gigs. You know, different clubs locally and then playing in the city and doing stuff locally up in Boston and Connecticut and you know we were, we were start to really get busy then we got a call about three four months later to come out to LA um, and do this spin his 25th anniversary party from a very good friend of ours that we grew up with that was in uh, the music business and was working for Columbia when he was in New York and then had moved out to LA. And his name was Glenn Friedman. He was the one that uh, basically was the agent on putting that show together for us. So we went out to LA and we did the Spinner's 25th anniversary party. And basically, when we got out there after we did it, he said, Hey, you know what? You need to stay out here and play and work and gig and, you know, do what we got to do until we get a record deal. We're not going back. So that's what we did. We came out there with, 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 with meager, uh, <laughs> with, with, with meager sustenance or, or provisions, <laughs> you know, with uh, you know, with the clothes we had, and we took with us, and whatever money we had, and whatever credit card people had, and that's what we did. We stayed and we lived like a, we lived cooperatively, like as a like a co-op. We worked, we worked, and um, you know, we worked like a family, as a collective. Just put it that way. Um, yeah, it, it, we just, we just were, you know, we, we had that synergistic dynamic going on, you know, and it, and it worked, you know, it, it, it really made it strong, 
Um, we got out there we, and we paid some dues, but we had a tight unit. The music was good. When we went to do auditions, people, you know, would fall right into it. They loved the band, and so we they would book us, and we started really getting busy after that. Now, what I've read is that around 77 is when you got the A&M deal. Um, how did that happen? Did Herb Alpert actually see you guys play or someone else, or what happened? Well, what happened was, at that time, we had, uh, we had a, um, a manager that was with us by the name of Earl Cole. And we had worked to do a demo um, prior to going over to A&M. Because um, that was the other thing. Once we got out there and we got settled, we ran into uh, these two brothers by the name of the Weissmans. And basically, we did uh, a demo deal with them, basically. And they, we went to the studio there and we cut a, a demo, which really was an album. And then once we finished it, um, the manager at the time, Earl Cole, um, he started shopping the demo around. Um, so there was uh, an A&R guy at a Records by the name of Barry Corkin. And he heard it and he liked it. And so we came down to one of the after-hour places we were playing down in Anaheim called Elliot Smith and Jones. And it came and I guess the band had blew him away because, you know, we were really tight in those days. We were playing. That's all we did. We would do sometimes, <laughs> we were doing three gigs a night. We played one location, pack up. Break down, pack up, go to the next one, do another three sets. You know, break down, pack up, and go to the after hours and then play at six, seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, so that's really where Barry Corkin came to see us. But, you know, we were young, we were working out every day, you know, that, you know, we were carrying the equipment and playing and breaking it down and driving and everything. It was totally self contained. So, like I said, Barry came, he heard the group, loved it, he told Herb about it. And so they uh, invited us to come to A&M to do an audition. And so we went to A&M. When we got there, Barry was there. Herb Albert came to listen to us. We did it on La Brea at the old Charlie Chaplin studio where A&M Records used to be big sound stage they had there. And it's be, you know, it wasn't um, a problem for us because we were playing so much. We, it wasn't like we were as, you know, nervous or scared or anything. It's like, you know, we fell right into it. So we came and did what we were doing all the time. So after we finished and after they heard the group, um, Barry uh, and told us that Herb loved the group and he wanted to sign us. But not too long after that is when we signed with a Records. That was our first record deal. How excited were you guys? Well, we were very excited, you know. 
because it took us about a year and a half, year and six months to get to that point. Mm -hmm. You know, after persevering, paying dues, you know, having a corporate living and having to share everything, and, you know, um, and, and practice, 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 uh, it paid off. Able to finally call mom and dad back east and say, hey, it's going to be okay? Yeah, that was a good feeling to be able to call back and say we uh, landed a record deal. That was a real good feeling. Yeah. And at that time, there was nine or ten of you, or how many band members? It was nine at, uh, at that time. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was a total of nine um, people. Yeah. So what went into... You know that first record did you pretty much just upgrade the demo you had done or how did you get that together well the, uh, um, the demo let me just give you a little background on the demo because the demo that we did we did it with michael jackson's cousin ron ransom he was he produced he was working with the weissman's production group and he came in and he co-produced that with my brother Wayne because my brother Wayne basically was the arranger. He was most of the stuff that was written was written by him. Um, you know, he was producing the vocals and all of that. So um, because he had the technical skills, you know, he, he was doing arrangements, writing the string arrangements, all of that, you know giving parts to everybody. And so him and Ron basically were the focal point of that first demo, Ron Manson. And Ron came in with a lot of uh, a lot of the know-how knowledge on how to put music together commercially. You know what I'm saying, or how to how to assimilate it. You know how to uh, polish it, package it. Right. How to yeah. make it make sense. You know what I'm saying. So basically, I got to give a lot of credit to Ron because Ron came in. He was he was a great guy. You know he's a funny guy. Guy would have you laughing all day. He he was unique. He was truly a funster. <laughs> He was a funky dude, but he was he was he was a great guy. Very very knowledgeable. Matter of fact, Ron was the one that played keyboards with the Jackson Five when they were out on the road. He played uh, he played clarinet and I think he played organ at time and then piano. So he was right there with the with the Jackson. He was in the Jackson band. You know, so it was great working with him. Yeah. So that first uh, record came out in '78, um, and uh, you had Bobby Eli credited as producer, who had all kinds of Philadelphia-related experience. And how did that come together? Yeah, the first album, did, the first two albums we did with Bobby Eli. Um, I think barry corkin was the one i don't i don't remember i'm trying to remember who put us together but it might have been barry corkin that put us together with Bobby. um 
And yeah, so Bobby did the first two albums, and he was working with another guy that was that became a good friend of mine named Jeff Busan that was writing a lot of the lyrics with Bobby. Bob, you know, he was a co-writer with Bobby and Bobby's songs. Um, Bobby was an incredible guitar player. His pocket, in terms of his rhythm, was impeccable. Because um, he played on all that Sound of Philly stuff. You know, all the stuff at that time was coming out of Philadelphia. You know, Jackie Moore, MFSB, all that stuff Bobby was playing on. And I think he wrote um, the, the Major Harris song, Love Won't Let Me Wait. I think Bobby wrote that, um, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, Bobby came with a with a with a wealth of knowledge when, when it came down to being in the studio and, and tracking and putting um, and laying down parts, um, stacking um, uh, instruments and vocals and so on and so forth. He was really. Um, he was really great at that. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely could feel some of that, you know, Gamble and Huff type vibe coming through on some oh, yeah. of those first two records. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because we, the second record, we, we heard, we, we recorded down in Philly at uh, Sigma Sound on 13th Street. Hmm. But we were in the heart of, of it all, you know. And, McFadden and Whitehead and Teddy Pennygrass and all of them we caught it out of. Uh, OJ's, yeah. OJ's. And, and trying to think the producer that was time. Martin, his last name was Martin. Um, what was his first name? Uh, I can't remember his first name. I think it might have been Robert Martin. Can't remember, but he was he was the guy that uh, did a lot of production. Uh, Tom Bell and uh, you know it was, it was active place. You know, um, great musicians down in in Philadelphia. Very unique place, just to say. It was, it was, uh, energy was impressive. How did you feel about, you know, you guys uh, had a single stand-up, got to number 16 on the R&B chart, which is pretty yeah. good for a debut, you know. How, how did you guys feel about that? Were you encouraged? Did you Were you hungry for more? What? Yeah, it's like, when I remember when stand-up first hit the radio, it was like, whoa. It was like, finally. You know, because that was a song that Wayne uh, wrote, and he used to play with his band, Unchained Youth. And I remember when I first heard it, when they played it, I was like, damn, go on, this song. You know, the way they hit it, pocket, was like, whoa, this, this, it was banging, you know. So, you know, once we uh, became Atlantic Star, then. You know, he, he uh, we cut it with our group, you know, and you know, to finally hear it on radio, 
was definitely uh, a high. You know, after all the time, and it was another song that they released because uh, we used to hear it in L.A. when the record first came out. It was called "With Your Lover Come Alive" and Porter Carroll sang that. I'll never forget hearing that on the radio. That was a song that uh, Bobby Eli and Jeff Brusson wrote. It was, it was that was another song that had a vibe about it that was really. I'll never forget hearing those two songs on the radio, and it was like, wow, we finally, we, you know, we finally arrived. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it was an incredible feeling. You know, as at that time, on the first album, we recorded it out in California at um, at uh, my brain. I got, I got to think. It was, it was a studio up, Coanga. Hollywood Sound. Mm-hmm. But Maurice and Verdine and them were working a lot at that time. And they were working with Denise Williams and another group called Pockets. Yeah. And so we used to run into them all the time in the studio. Because we were recording, that was the place, the studio is where we recorded basically the whole first album was in Hollywood Sound. Was Pockets also from Philly? I believe Pockets was from Philly. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that first record, too, had that Gimme Your Love In, which was real nice funk track. Oh, Gimme Your Love Gimme Your Love Right Now. Oh, yeah. I Bobby um, and Jeff wrote that. Yeah, that was that was funky. Bobby played guitar, and I'll just remember him in the studio rocking. And the way he was hitting it, it was like... It was just like, you know, it was back in those days, it was different because we didn't have the sequences and the the musical technology like we have, like like we eventually evolved to, like in the 80s. So you had to play everything live. So you had to be tight. Everybody had to play together because if you were in the middle of playing and somebody messed up, you'd have to start all over again. So when we started playing, our recording, when we did the new stuff that we I was telling you about, and even with Unchained You, because I bought them in the studio to cut their first demo down Electric Ladyland on 8th Street in Village, Jimi Hendrix studio. When we first started going in, everybody played. The horns would have, have their own booth, the rhythm section, and we would lay the music down Everybody would play at the same time. We didn't overdub unless we came back and we overdubbed another horn piece or did some overdubs for guitar or maybe some piano or other stuff. But the basic foundation, horn, bass, drums, keyboards, guitars, everybody played at the same time. So you had to be tight. Because if you wasn't, you'd have to start all over again and you might take a beat down. <laughs> For messing up too many times, <laughs> or get you know get the bad looks and what you know almost get cursed out. You like yo man, come on. So yeah, you had to really you know you had to be tight and you had to be in pocket. You know, so we didn't have all those tracks back in those days like you have now. I remember when I first started recording, we were recording on four eight tracks. You know what I'm saying? So. 
had, like I said, you just had to be tight. It had to be polished, put it that way. Yeah. Well, and most bands that got anywhere had to, you know, be out there a while like you guys were to get right. those skills to that place. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, Jonathan, your second album uh, didn't quite do as well, I don't think, as the first one. And then you guys made a, or somebody made a switch in producers to uh, James Carmichael. What 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 happened there? Um, I don't know. I think after the second album, um, I don't know. It was it's 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 hard to say. I don't know if the company kind of really believed in it or. I don't know if it was a marketing issue because it seemed like we always had that issue in terms of how to market these guys. But I don't really remember, to really be honest, I don't remember what happened after the second album. I just know we changed producers. Uh, I know that second album was like, that was like pulling alligator teeth, you know, to finally get it done. Um, my brother, My brother Wayne and myself were the last two people that finally left Philly because we had to stay there with Bobby to do uh, all the edits on the whole album and mastering. And then I had a deadline date where I had to get the record out to the record company. So went myself literally must have stayed up for two days straight trying to get this record finished. I mean, even Bobby got tired and said, guys, y'all got it because he said, I got to go. So we were we were the last two standing, <laughs> but um, I'll never forget when we finally got it done. That did that last edit, got it mastered. You know, well, it got mastered out in California. I'm sorry, Bunny, uh, Bernie Bernie uh did the mastering. But when we finally did that last edit, and we had the two inch, uh, we had the half inch copy along with the TV tracks and Slaves and all that. We were like, bam, we took all our stuff back to the hotel. And then they were sending a, a company to pick it up to ship it to LA. Oh. And we were so knocked out and tired that when they came to the hotel to pick up the tapes, we almost missed them. I just happened to hear the guy banging on the door. So we got up, I got up, gave him everything, you know, I don't know, I can't remember if it was UPS or one of the carriers came, picked it up, took it out to LA, and then mastered everything, and then came out, you know what I'm saying? Um, I but to be, I don't really remember totally what happened, you know, it's just... Kind I like the like cover a, of that one. That was a good-looking good cover. Yeah, yeah, with, with, with the girl on the horse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a good cover. Interesting. Yeah, attention-getting, you know, and you needed yeah. that, you know, in the record stores. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Um, well, James Carmichael, though, of course, you know, came from, you know, a lot of the Motown production and Commodores and stuff like that, and so... Mm-hmm. You know, he sort of brought, I guess, more of a, a Detroit soul kind of mix to it, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Philly influence. So, 
you know, how do you feel that you guys progressed once he came aboard? Because then you start really becoming what Atlantic Star was going to fully be, you know? Yeah, well, when James Carmichael came, it was magical because he was, he was, he, he, he moved, the way he did things were real methodically. You know, he did, he did it in a methodical way because you, he would do stuff you didn't know what he was doing and why he was doing it. Um, but you didn't really realize the dynamics of it until it was done. It was like that. And now, when you look back on it, I mean, the music was timeless. And it was because of how he knew how to produce timeless music. You know, James Carmichael was a master a master producer he was like you know like the, the like the, the the master kung fu instructor so to speak the you sensei know, yeah the sensei exactly he he james was just incredible i mean he was an incredible arranger he knew how to put parts in where to put them the right vibe, the right instrument to play that part. When it came down to sweetening and overdubs, or when he would incorporate and bring external people in to help with the project, he just had that that that, that knack about him. He had that talent about him. He, it, it was, I guess, yeah, it was natural for him. You know what I'm saying? He just was... He was just incredible, all I can say. He was a great, great, great mentor and a great uh, producer. And we learned a lot from him, especially my brothers, because basically they were writing a lot together as we evolved. David started writing more, and so him mm -hmm. and Wayne became more or less the writing team. And they started writing together. And James liked their style of writing so he used a lot of the songs that they wrote you know um, the, the first product of that uh union was uh, radiant in 1980 right um made it to number five in the r&b chart so you immediately like entered like a new level um right you know chart wise airplay wise um had a top five single when love calls you know, and the whole record just really smokes from beginning to end, so. Yeah, that was a great album. That album was, that was the first production of James, and it was a great, 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 great album. I mean, the songs, his approach, and how he did what he did, it was just, it was an awesome album. And then it just seemed like the build. Brilliance was, came after that, and that was another great album. Yeah, yeah I, f I felt like um, the other thing about when Carmichael came in, I felt like when you guys did funk, it was it was deeper. When you did soul, it was richer, and right. uh, the bass was a little more prominent. Right. You know, all these elements and coalescing them, you know. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. The, the dynamics and the sonics changed. You know, so that's, that's, you're, you're totally right about that, you know. 